everyone has a story to tell. But what if, what if you are born with a rare medical condition? How do you adjust? How do you live a life? How do you go on when you find that your daughter, your only child, has it also? Listen to her story, a story of triumph, a story of strength. Welcome to Today's Woman. I'm Dr. Oman, and I have the pleasure of having a very special woman with me, and she has agreed to share her story. <laughs> to share her story not because it's so common, but because her story is very uncommon. And she talks about navigating that situation for herself and then subsequently for her daughter. So thank you for sharing your story. Good afternoon, you're welcome. So um, can you tell us the beginning of the story? Um, So you wanna start with me? Please. Okay. Um, so I was diagnosed with hereditary sclerocytosis. Um, I think at age five, um, and then I had a splenectomy at age, I want to say maybe six, and then um, you know I just kind of went through my life not really knowing much, right. Um, running into a lot of doctors who didn't really know much about it and not really finding out a lot of information about it until I had my daughter who was diagnosed with it at birth, actually. Yeah. Question, <clears throat> did you know your condition was genetic at the time that you were pregnant? No. No. Okay. And for essentially all of us, mm -hmm. can you explain what hereditary spherocytosis is. Okay, so um, it is a blood condition where your red blood cells are sphere-shaped instead of round, and they get stuck in the spleen. So any virus, cold, illness, um, the spleen becomes enlarged. Well, it gets stuck in the spleen and the spleen becomes enlarged and the fear is that the spleen will rupture. So you usually end up having to, sooner than later, um, have a splenectomy. And uh, any fever, after the splenectomy, any fever over 101, you have to be admitted, you have to be observed for 24 hours and receive uh, IV antibiotics. Um, when it affects the red blood cells and you can become jaundice. Oh, and I forgot to mention the other day too, um, Puts you at high risk for gallstones. Mm -hmm. So we always have to watch out for gallstones. Um, it's not painful like uh, um, sickle cell. Like you don't get a crisis. There's not pain. But a lot of the treatment is the same. And you're followed by hematology as well like you are with sickle cell. Okay, so there <clears throat> may be a couple of people are nervous right about that. <laughs> How do you know? Now, again, let me just say this name. It's hereditary. Meaning, meaning that it's transmitted from parent to child. Yes. And spherocytosis. Spiro. Spherocytosis. And that refers to the shape of the red blood cells. Yes. Which is abnormal. Yes. And because of the shape of the red blood cells, they are destroyed in the spleen. 
yeah. And as a result of the red cells being destroyed, someone becomes very anemic. Yes. All right. Yes. So that's hereditary spherocytosis. Yes. All right. Yes. That's a lot to say. <laughs> um, so how, because it's rare, mm -hmm. how does someone know if they have it? I have no idea. So when I was coming up in eighties, right? I was born in in nineteen eighty. So in the early eighties, when I was diagnosed with it, I'm only going to speak for myself. It was not called hereditary. They did not refer to it as hereditary spherocytosis. Are you saying that in 1980, they didn't even realize it was hereditary? Not to my knowledge. Now, you have to remember I was still a little kid, okay. but it was called spherocytosis. That was it. The hereditary part wasn't part of the name until, or well, I didn't find out it was part of the name until I had my daughter. And then they said, well, you know, this is hereditary. Well, no, I never knew that. No one ever told me. I asked questions when I found out I was pregnant throughout my pregnancy, even during delivery. They kept saying, you'll be fine. You know, it'll be fine. You'll be fine. No, it won't affect your pregnancy. You'll be fine. Do you think that's because you were being dismissed or because <clears throat> some other reason? I can't even think of what another reason might be. Well, I know a lot of doctors that I've come in contact with in because uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I moved to New York and I lived in New York for a while and then I moved back to Philadelphia and um, they just didn't know what it was. I had one doctor go get a medical journal and kind of look it up and a lot of people just didn't. And it wasn't a Google, you know, it wasn't Google age yet. We weren't in the Google age yet. So a lot of people just didn't know what it was. And I wasn't followed by... A hematologist the way that I should have been so I just went to my you know my regular appointments and I would ask and they would say oh no you'll be fine the baby will be fine it doesn't affect your pregnancy you'll be fine and so I said okay okay let's back up a little bit you said you realized you had this condition when you were five six years old yes how did you realize you had the condition uh, I, my pediatrician that I was going to at the time at one of the free clinics in Philadelphia, uh, my blood count was always low. I think my baseline, my uh, hemoglobin may have been, I think my baseline was like a six, seven. Okay. And, and we should say normal range is usually above 11. Right. Right. And so she, you know, mentioned to my mother, she wanted me to go see a hematologist and I just remember going to Children's Hospital and doing all these tests and then them telling us that I needed surgery. I needed to have my spleen removed. And then I had my spleen removed. And at that time, no pain. It was just the anemia that brought you to the hospital. That I remember, yes. <clears throat> so after having your spleen removed at the age of six, any other follow-up needed? Or were you, mm -hmm. was the problem fixed? or? So no, I was closely followed by... Um, children's Hospital, the hematologist, and the primary. Um, I switched everything over to Children's Hospital. So mm -hmm. I no longer went to the clinic. Mm -hmm. Everything was at Children's Hospital. Mm -hmm. I was closely followed. Um, and then, so that was about seven. So I think I had my spleen removed about seven years old. I was in second grade, I think. Do you remember, did you think, now that my spleen's been removed, 
I don't have a problem anymore, or what was your level of, I know you were seven, mm -hmm. so it's hard to talk about right. what you understood at seven, but if you can think back, what were your parents telling you, or what kind of impression did you have about your condition? So it was more so, you know, don't get sick, be careful, take your, at the time, the medicine I had to take was penicillin twice a day. Um, every day? Every day, because you don't have a spleen, so you need something to fight off infection. You need something to do what the spleen normally does. Recently, within this last couple of months, after taking my daughter to her um, follow her hematology appointment, finding out that penicillin is no longer needed. They're finding that it's causing more harm than good. So, but at the time, you take folic acid, you take two penicillin a day, one in the morning, one at night. Try not to get sick and be careful. <laughs> that was that was what I remember. Um, but I was about six or seven. And then when I was nine, my mother got really sick. She died when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And so the care level wasn't the same. Because, mm -hmm. you know, my grandmother was taking care of her, taking mm -hmm. care of me. And then, mm -hmm. yeah. So it kind of, we kind of like fell off. Growing up, <clears throat> did you feel like you were a sick child? Or could you pretty much do whatever you wanted to do? Um. No, I wasn't really a sick child. I, actually, I don't knock on wood. I actually don't get sick that often. When I do get sick, I get really sick. But I don't get sick that often. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, no. And I would use it to my advantage. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if yeah. I didn't want to do something, I would mm -hmm. kind of, you know. <laughs> But no, I wasn't really, I don't remember being like a real sickly kid. Um, and then no, because again, I don't think it was a lot of, or I'm going to say we didn't know a lot about it. So how it was put to us was once you remove the spleen, she'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, because the biggest fear is the spleen rupturing. That is the biggest fear because the spleen becomes enlarged and it becomes enlarged really quickly. So the biggest fear is we got to get the spleen out. That's even still, that's the biggest thing. And then it's like once you get the spleen out, you just kind of monitor. And, you know, that was that was the biggest thing. So once we passed that hurdle, it was like, oh, okay, she's fine. All right. So it's we now say it's hereditary. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone in your family before you? that had a blood disorder or had spherocytosis? We don't know about the spherocytosis. Um, just because I don't think anybody was ever tested for it. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a family history of sickle cell and sickle cell trait um, on both sides. Both of my parents had sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. I only have the trait, which mm -hmm. normally, you know, two parents have the trait, mm -hmm. child has the disease. I only have the trait. Mm -hmm. um, and my daughter now has the trait as well. Mm -hmm. But my husband does not have the trait. Mm -hmm. he, no, he doesn't have it. So. Right. Oh, my. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, so that's a lot to handle. So basically, if I'm understanding you, it was a bit of a surprise when you were six and seven, but the thought was, my spleen has been removed, I should be okay. You know, the worst is not going to happen because we don't have to worry about the spleen rupturing because she doesn't have a spleen and just live your life. Yes. Right. Yep, pretty much. All right. And so you do and you get pregnant. Right. 
and you're thinking, you're asking, you're saying, but everyone's saying you'll be fine. Right. How did you realize that your daughter was affected? So, had her via C-section. Um, so, had her on a Saturday. Maybe by Monday, they were saying, you know, her belly rubin levels were really high. They couldn't get them to come down. So, they started the light treatment. Mm -hmm. And we did maybe one or two days of the light treatment and nothing. They were still high. And I think they were like in the 20s or something. And I think they finally got them down to maybe, I don't know, like 17 or something. I just know they were really high. And uh, so it's time for me to be discharged from the hospital. And now they have her in the NICU, like under the lights. She can't leave the room, anything. And I just happened to be in there talking to one of the NICU doctors, <clears throat> the neonatologist. And he's saying, you know, we're trying to figure out what's wrong. We can't figure out why her belly rubin levels are so high. They should be dropping. And, you know, he's going through all these different possibilities. And it could be this and it could be that. And then he says, you know, and it could be like a family history of something. And I said, oh, well, I have cirrhosis and sickle cell treat. And he said, well, why didn't you tell anybody? And I said, I've been telling people since I found out I was pregnant. I have. He said, well, that's it. And he was, he was he seemed really relieved because they were completely puzzled as to why this child and she was almost a nine pound baby so she was like the biggest baby in the NICU she's nine pounds she's perfectly healthy head full of hair and she they just could not get her levels to come down um so you know once I said that to him he was like oh my god that's probably it okay so uh, we had to leave her there. She stayed there two additional days, and then she came home. She was able to come home. But we had to follow up with hematology. Yeah, okay. So now this is a real interesting situation because you are interacting with the healthcare system that initially didn't seem to know as much as you did. Right. And then when you try to, you know, ask them questions, it seems like maybe they didn't pay too much attention. And then when you finally say it again, someone hears you. Right. And then they say, why didn't you tell us this before? <laughs> right, right. For someone, not necessarily with a blood disorder, but with a medical concern, mm -hmm. and things don't seem right, mm -hmm. or you have questions based on your experience of what you've been through, what what would you do? What would you suggest? Or let me say it another way. Knowing what you know now, mm -hmm. would you have done something differently during your pregnancy or delivery or postpartum? I would have, yes. So during pregnancy, I did not have a primary care doctor, right? I didn't really start going to the, because I was 21, 22, 22. So a little young, you know, a little dumb. Um, <laughs> and... I would, I went to, straight to the, um, the OBGYN clinic and I just was followed by them. Mm -hmm. I should have reached out to a hematologist on my own and tried to, because I knew from being a kid, I was followed by hematology, right? Yeah. So I should have just like trusted my instinct and just reached out to hematology on my own. Um, and just, if, you know, just tell everybody. Just keep asking, keep saying it until somebody hears you. You know, I kind of just took the first answer and just, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I had got um, a new doctor during my pregnancy. 
and told them and they said okay you know and then when i went in to have her i kind of asked again because i had a really kind of hard labor well it wasn't hard but i just wouldn't dilate mm -hmm. so i kind of said it again like is this the reason and they were like mm, no and i said okay you know i feel like i should have advocated more for myself mm -hmm. i should have said it to any and everybody do you know why you didn't uh, do you feel like you were intimidated do you feel like you assumed that they didn't care, you shouldn't care? Um, no, I just thought that they were giving me the right answers. I thought I was asking the right people and I was getting the right answers. I didn't feel like I was being brushed off. I didn't feel like I was being... Um, I know a few of them, and I, because I experienced this when I was younger, they always had like this puzzled look. Just a lot of people just don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so... My 21-year-old, so 22-year-old self, you know, just kind of took that as well. If they saying it's not a big, if they don't, if they saying it's not a big deal, then that must mean that it's not, that it's not, you know. So, my, I would go to my appointments every month and my baby was healthy and I was healthy, right? My pregnancy was normal mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. So, it was like, well, it's not causing any issues, with my pregnancy or with mm -hmm. her or her development mm -hmm. so i took the answers that they gave me and kind of just went with it all right so this is a delicate question okay when she was born and you finally realized that yes she does have spherocytosis uh -huh. was there any guilt did you feel guilty at all um well, maybe guilty is too much of an emotionally laden word. Um, felt responsible for her condition. Only no, not when she, not when I found out when she was first born. I was actually kind of relieved because I know what's wrong, mm -hmm. and I know what to do about it. Right? Because I have it. I know, or I thought I knew. Right? I, I didn't realize I didn't know anything until I had her. <laughs> <laughs> with everything in life but um it was like a relief like okay i know what to do with this okay right okay. it wasn't until she got older and just kept getting sick and you know hospital visits and the transfusions and things like that that i would start to feel like wow you know like damn i did this to her but prior to that i didn't know i was relieved that i knew what it was and i knew what to do with it because had it been something like i don't know like sickle cell I don't know what to do with that got you. right got you right um it sounds as though your daughter was sicker growing up than you were right and so that would present with her getting a fever or anemia mm -hmm. and how would that be treated um so fever so this is the other thing though because she was diagnosed at such a young age, so they diagnosed them, I think it's, I can't remember if it's six months or one, a year old. Oh, wow. I know they can't, they can't test them for it until, I think it's six months, because the mother's, everything from the mother has to be out of the baby, right? So right. I can't remember if it's six months or a year. So we had to wait, but we still kind of watched her, and she was followed by hematology and treated like she had spherocytosis, right? 
Quick question. Mm -hmm. Were they able to get the bilirubin down into the normal range? They were able to get it down enough. I think when she came home, it was maybe like an 11 or mm -hmm. something. But because they knew what was causing it. Right. Got and you. because it was going down, yes. they let her leave. Gotcha. Um, and just told me to follow up with hematops. So because she was diagnosed at such a young age, we watched her differently. Like when I was little, if I had a fever, oh, right, you. you get some soup, you take some yeah. Tylenol, you go lay down. Right. <laughs> and then you just get over it. But because we knew what she was dealing with, see, they didn't know what I was dealing with till I was about six. So they never correlated the fevers to something else. It was just, mm -hmm. you got a fever, mm -hmm. drink this ginger ale, mm -hmm. go lay down, eat mm -hmm. the toast, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when she would get a fever, we would act differently. So we knew we had different things that we had to do. Mm -hmm. Um and so usually it was always a hospital stay. Oh. So you would keep a bag packed. Oh, starting at what age? Uh, her first hospital stay, she was 18 months old. Wow. And she had a UTI, which is normal, I guess, for kids. I don't know. And how long would she have to stay in the hospital with the UTI? Well, so it's not necessarily, well, they didn't figure out it was a UTI for days. I think that time we stayed for almost a week because they have to test her for everything because they don't know what it is. So it was a nurse practitioner who just randomly said, let's test her for UTI. But they didn't know if she had, you know, they tested for ear infection, they tested her for, um, they tested her for parvovirus, because parvo is, even though there's something normally that dogs get, it's common for people with spherocytosis and, and I think sickle cell. So they tested her for that. They had this quarantine until certain tests came back. They were just, they could not figure out why these fevers were spiking. And um, she was so young. Was she even 18 months old? I think she was. So when we're talking about spiking fevers, do you know, remember how high they were? Like go? 103. It will go from normal to 103. And then... Would she get shakes and chills and sweats? Um, chills and just real lethargic. That's her, that's her, that's her sign. She just like wipes completely out. Even now she just wipes completely out and she breathes really heavy. Almost like a snoring type, but she can't, like she can't wake up. That's her tail. Yeah. And so <clears throat> for her to be that young and, um, you know, she was a baby, they were busy and then just nothing. So we spent about a week and she would have to get blood transfusions because the blood count drops. So she would get transfusions. And God, then it just, you know, we were playing. So did you have concerns about, this is in the ninth, what year is this? So this? she was born in 2003. 2003. So this might so, be 2005. So there's less of a concern about blood transfusions in your mind, you know, because there was a point where. So when I got my transfusion, the little boy, was it Brian White or something? Yes. And they had to almost Ryan White, yes. Right. They had to almost sit on my mother because she would not sign the paperwork for me to get a transfusion because AIDS was the big, big, big thing. I did not want to sign the papers. I asked every question that I could possibly think of. And the doctor, I don't know if he was trying to scare me into it. I don't know if he thought I was just a young, stupid mother. I don't know, but he said, Well, your baby can go into heart failure. So you need to sign these papers. And because her, her um, blood count, and I, I don't, I think that might have been the next time we were in there, but her blood count was like five point something. Mm. 
And yeah, so of course, I signed the papers, right? Because you're talking blood, the heart failure. No, I don't want to call it heart failure. Um, but uh, yeah, I, of course, because you read the paperwork and it's still on there AIDS, hepatitis. We could possibly give her the wrong blood type. Yes. So then you're thinking, well, can you take my blood and give yes. it to her? Well, you're not the same. And they can't take my blood because I have the same condition. So, right? My husband doesn't know his blood type. But, and they're like, we don't have time for that. We have blood already. Just sign the papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know, she's You're fine. laughing. You're laughing. But that sounds like that must have been so traumatic. It was, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I always say it'll be a funny story one day. Everything is you think is horrible, it'll be a funny story one day. And now it's like a funny story. <laughs> and so given that she started getting sick at a relatively relatively young age, mm -hmm. did you already plan, okay, when she turns six, we're taking her spleen? So they wanted to do it. We, start, we started planning for her splenectomy. Oh, God, was it? three four years old oh my and every time we would schedule it something would happen so the first time we scheduled she may have been i think maybe four the first time we scheduled and me and my husband are both business owners so schedule the surgery you know a few weeks out you do all the the pre-op stuff i close my business for a week he closed his business for a week right and you go in, and this particular time, the first time, she had this cough. And I didn't realize that she had had the cough until I went to give her, I went to give her some cough syrup and realized that the bottle was empty. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I've been giving this girl cough syrup every night for how long, right? No fever. No, because we're always worried about fever. And her doctors taught us how to feel for her spleen. You know, you're not supposed to be able to feel your spleen. Mm -hmm. So if you feel the spleen, you kind of measure it with your finger. So we fill in for the spleen and we check it for fever. It's nothing. She's fine. She just got this little cough. No problem. So maybe about a week before surgery, I take her to the doctor. And her, her doctors, they're great. They're a little neurotic, but they're great. And they, uh, her doctor said, um, let me send you for some x-rays. And I'm like, okay, I got to get back to work. But okay, go for x-rays come back down and she said you see that little dot right there i still to this day never saw the dot but i was like okay she said that's pneumonia and so we have to cancel the surgery so cancel the surgery put on anybody no i'm sorry put on antibiotics go to uh who did we go see uh, anesthesiologist i think we had to go see and it was like well we have to cancel you can't intubate anybody that has pneumonia right mm -hmm. so we had to do that. She had to be off of antibiotics, I think, for maybe a month or like weeks or something. Mm -hmm. And then go back and retest and make sure. Mm -hmm. So that got pushed. Second time we tried to do it, something happened. I don't remember what happened. I can't remember what happened. But it got canceled. Third time we <laughs> scheduled it, she had just out of the blue, day before the the day or two days before the surgery, her blood count just dropped to about a seven. And they didn't want to do it anything under, I think, an eight or a nine. Because her baseline at that time was like a nine. Mm -hmm. And it just it just dropped. So I think we actually did the surgery the fourth time. And oh. So we made it. We used to oh. make jokes. Like, we're not going to tell her. We're not going to tell her that she's having surgery. We're just going to take her to the doctor because she always finds some way to get out of it. So she was about, when we finally did it, she was... 
six getting ready to turn seven or she was seven already i think she was seven she was seven already and she was in the second grade yeah so as the mother of a child who's in and out of the hospital Mm -hmm. as the mother of a child who has to have surgery Mm -hmm. what would you tell a mother facing that situation oh god um Say prayers. <laughs> um, you know, ask every question that you can think of. No question is too stupid. I remember the, when we went in that morning for the surgery and I asked the anesthesiologist, how did you sleep last night? Mm-hmm. And he started laughing. He was like, but I slept really good. I was like, okay, then cool. We're good. Like, I just want to make sure you had a good night's sleep, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, try to schedule your appointments, your surgery early in the morning, early in the week so that nobody's really tired. Um, I don't know. I would really have to think about that one because I don't even know how to advise it. But I don't know. Just trust, trust your intuition. That's mm-hmm. trust your intuition. Always go with your gut. If it don't feel right, don't do it. It ain't right. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a few times I had like little, and I just. But the day of, I was fine. My husband was a mess, <laughs> but I was fine, and I was like, "Well, she's gonna be good." Because I didn't get that, you know, that feeling. I didn't get that feeling. I just, okay, she'll be fine. He slept good. Everybody was highly recommended. The surgeons were highly recommended. Yes. Um, She has a really, really, really good team. Her primary doctor and her hematologist, Mm -hmm. they've been her doctor since she was a newborn. And I really trust them. So when they recommend certain things or don't recommend certain things, I really... And they talk to me like <clears throat> like a parent. like, And they talk to me as a parent and they talk to me like, you know, they trust my judgment too. I mean, they're family for all practical purposes. Right, right. And that's... And they... So they respect my decisions on certain things. They respect my... And they, you know, they've called me from... <laughs> The craziest places, one of her doctors called me one time during mass, and I heard the choir in the background saying, I'm like, where are you? She's like, I'm in mass, but I just wanted to call you and check on you. You know, they, the connection is really, they've given me their, like, listen, call me whenever, do this. No, don't do that. Do this. And so um, when they recommended these surgeons and anesthesiologists and said she really needs this, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, if they telling me to do this, I need to do this. Wow. Yeah. So you and also that's the other thing. Make sure you trust your team. Make sure you trust them. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. Like you don't have to stay there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 That's a good place. So now that baby, how old is that baby now? <laughs> the baby is seventeen. She'll be eighteen in December. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And her life is essentially normal at this point. She's had a spinectomy. She's had a spinectomy. Um, what kind of precautions does she have to take at this point? Um, she still has to take her folic acid. They've gotten rid of the antibiotics, but she does have an emergency antibiotic in case she gets a fever and cannot get to the hospital in two hours, within two hours. But the plan mm-hmm. is always the same. If you get a fever of 101, you have to go to the emergency room. Um... So, that's, you know, just, 
I mean, she's 17 now. She's in college. And of course she is uh, enjoying her freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But, you know, I still kind of stay in her ear. Like, you have to make sure you take your vitamins. You have to make sure you eat well. Mm -hmm. Don't eat a lot of fatty foods because they'll cause gallstones. You have a high risk for gallstones. Um, you want to keep your immune system up as much as you can because you're, now you're in this, well, I mean, even in high school and traveling on public transportation, but you're in this yes. circle where people are doing what they want to do, right? So you have to protect yourself. You have to keep your immune system up. Um... And that's say my prayers and make sure she take her vitamins. That's all I got. <laughs> all right, which brings us to <laughs> that's all I got. The pandemic. Oh God. And the precautions and the the care. How does it differ from what anyone else might do? So, we have always been germaphobes. And then having a child that was sickly, it became even a little bit worse because we deal with the public and we're like close with our customers, right? Um, so, uh, I'm a little bit of a nervous wreck. In the very beginning, you know, all our, both of our businesses were shut down, so we were in-house. And I was a little happy about that. Probably shouldn't have been, but I was happy because I cut everybody in the house. Mm -hmm. And then when I realized that's not realistic, but I mean, nobody was allowed to come in. You had to come in. You had to change your clothes. You had to wash your hands. You had to, I had Lysol cans by the door. You had to spray the packages. You had to spray yourself. Yes, it was, it was, it was, but I am a German fool. I do not, I do not. Now, that's the way you were last year. Are you that way still? Um... You can come in the house, you have to have a mask on. Uh, I will spray behind you when you leave. <laughs> um, we had to have some work done in the house and it was really bad. Like I was really freaking out because one of the guys walked through the house without a mask on and I, I it was bad. Um, but, you know, uh, my daughters, I have a stepdaughter as well. My daughters, and my stepdaughter has asthma. So, you know, we were worried about both of them. Yes. Um, but they're germaphobes now, too. <laughs> so it kind of helped my anxiety go down a little bit because I know that they are hand washers and they're mask wearers. And, you know, they don't like too many people anyway. They don't like being in tight spaces. So social distancing has always been that thing before it was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that gives me some level of ease but it's yeah it was bad last year it was really bad so do you care to say whether or not you've gotten the vaccine i got it <laughs> i got it i don't i'm not gonna say it doesn't work i do think it works i do believe in science i do believe in medicine of course i believe in medicine and science but um it's the people that i have the issues with not the medicine and the science it's the people what do you mean uh, i think that one of my biggest issues is <clears throat> that it's how can i put it i think it's not just so i think there's too much weighing 
laying on this vaccine. Like, I think the vaccine is supposed to be... I know it's supposed to be a cure, but I think it's supposed to be like like the savior of all of this, right? But there are so many other things that we could have done, that we could do to help, right? So there's never been, since the pandemic has started, like we are so unhealthy, it's ridiculous, right? There's never been anything about take these vitamins or don't eat this, right? Or just try to exercise, try to strengthen your lungs a little bit, try to get outside, get fresh air. Like there's never been a whole plan. It's just the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And like even when it did come out, you know, and people were skeptical and didn't want to get it. And I remember one of the fast food restaurants was giving out fast food in exchange for the vaccine. <laughs> or if we weren't eating the fast food like we are and we weren't 600 pounds, maybe we wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, and so that's, that really get that really kind of pisses me off. Like, I believe in medicine. I have gotten vaccines. There's some yes. that I don't get, some that I have gotten. You know, I'm. You heard my story. I, I yes. mean, I I trust yes. doctors. I trust them. Yes. But come on, it's not. We have to. So our daughter has gone to private schools most mm -hmm. of her life, <clears throat> and. One of the things I learned from her being in private school that I never experienced myself is that you have to nurture the whole child, right? You can't just focus on academics because it's not always about academics. Mm -hmm. The kid might be hungry. She might be going through something. It may be something else. And so you have to nurture the whole child. And it's kind of like this. Like you have to nurture the whole person, right? If you have mucus in your body, well... You got to get that out because that's causing this, this, and this. There was, in the very beginning, <laughs> there was a thing about smokers. They said people who smoke, uh, COVID wouldn't really get into their lungs because it, it was, you know, it was just the dumbest thing I ever heard. And then come to find out those doctors that said that had affiliations with the tobacco companies. But, and it was like. That doesn't even make sense. So you telling people if they smoke more, they won't get cold. It it it's just it just frustrates it just frustrates me. Right. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing you say that not enough attention was paid to all the other things that people could do. Yes. In addition to getting the vaccine, right? But they should get the vaccine. I think it's a personal choice. I think it's a personal choice. I don't believe in the mandates. I think it should be a personal choice. I think not to make this a debate about the vaccine, right. but what about it's for the greater good, meaning that a certain number of people need to be immune mm -hmm. in order to prevent transmission. Yeah. So even though you feel I'm I'm doing all the right things, right? I'm treating my body well, right? I'm gonna do it for I'm gonna do it for all of us. I'm gonna do it for the group of us, right? No problem with that. Mm -mm. Okay, that sounds good. Wow. I prefer the mask and the social distancing. <laughs> Cover your mouth and stay away from me, right? But you work <laughs> in an industry where you're right on top of somebody. Right. Cover your mouth and stay, like, cover your mouth. I have not, knock on wood, have not been sick. Like, the normal colds and stuff that you would normally get, I just feel like we're just, we're... I just, I, 
I prefer the mask, and I think I'm going to keep it on, even like at work, even if it, it goes away, so even at work, because I just realized, <laughs> it's like, I can't believe I've been breathing on you all these years, and I've let you breathe on me. Absolutely. Right? I just can't believe we've been, you know, we go to restaurants, and they, ha I can't believe they've been breathing on our food all these years. <laughs> so, I mean, and you in particular, you have to be careful about not getting an infection. Right. So what were you doing pre-COVID to keep yourself healthy? Because that's a real, I mean, it's important for all of us, right. but for you in particular. Myself? Yes. Um, I don't exercise as much as I should, but I try to. Um, I was actually, before COVID, <laughs> I was exercising a lot more. I like spin. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of spin classes. I bought myself a Peloton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I eat pretty healthy i'm all organic i don't do dairy um i had get, gotten rid of gluten a few years ago i kind of went back on it during the pandemic because there was nothing else to do but eat can i ask you what made you decide to make those dietary changes so a few years ago um my mother-in-law had gotten cancer and my daughter was in elementary school and was having behavioral issues and one of her teachers pulled me to the side and said, you know, you're sending her to school with all this sugar. Mm. And her 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 sugar, her glycemic, and it's just going up and down all day. You know, you sent her, and I thought, I gave her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I gave her yogurt and uh, a snack, right? Fruit cup. That's all sugar. Mm. And so I had to start reading labels. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I've been feeding this stuff to my family. And then I started switching us over to different things. Um, and at the same time, my mother-in-law, she started seeing a holistic doctor who changed her diet. And so between that and the issues that we were having, it just was like we just changed a lot of the things that we did. Um, and then the, the dairy, I had started switching us off of dairy. <laughs> I started switching us off of dairy around that time. And But I would still do cheese for macaroni and cheese and things like that. And myself and my husband had horrible inflammation. And we went to a doctor and he said, you got to get rid of the dairy. It's causing inflammation in your body. And when I did, it went away. I had issues with my knees. And when I did, the pain went away. Um, and the issues with your daughter improved when you removed the sugar? Um, It definitely improved. She still had regular, normal, mm -hmm. but she wasn't spiking and dropping all day. Yeah. So, you know, we upped her protein and fiber and cut down the sugar, and she kind of mellowed out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, that was the beginning of our dietary changes. So, we do all organic, um, try not to do any processed stuff. What do you say to people that say, oh, there's really no difference between organic and conventional? And organic is way too expensive. It is. <laughs> it is. And during the pandemic, I remember coming home from the market one day. Because my biggest fear was, it's four of us in the house and nobody's working. And I have to feed all these people. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear was not being able to feed my family. And I would come home and, like, so I started overbuying food, right? Mm -hmm. And we usually go to Whole Foods and, you know, we would go two, three times a week. Because you can't buy that stuff. You can't keep it. And Whole Foods was out of food. They ain't had no food. And it was too expensive. And I had to go to the... I started going back to the market. I do a lot of shopping in Target, too. 
and um the shelves will be empty and then the only stuff that you could find in bulk was the super processed stuff and it just was like oh my god like if i can't afford to feed my family the way i want us to eat that's going to actually keep us from get i can't afford to feed my family from keep us keeping us from getting sick right i gotta give us this processed stuff which is going to make us sicker but the stuff that would keep us from getting sick you can't afford or find and that just that put me in a really bad space <laughs> so i was able to knock on wood find what i needed and make it work but you know we cut out a lot of the fresh fruits and vegetables because they don't last long so i might buy like some fruit but I wouldn't buy as much as, and then I went, didn't want to go out that often. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going shopping every two weeks, as opposed to two, three times a week, stopping at the market, I need something that's going to last two mm -hmm. for two mm -hmm. to three weeks. So it really, it really was, um, it's really just sad. Cause again, if we did better things, we wouldn't be so sick and we wouldn't get so sick, mm -hmm. but you can't afford you you can't afford it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Well, actually, you can't afford not to do it. Actually. You can't afford not to do it. But yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, you have to be creative with it. You got to do farmers markets. You got to figure out how to do it. But you it's have to really, figure out how to cook. You have to cook it. That's true. There's no fast food. You know, if you're hungry, there's no running to hurry up and get something. It's mm -hmm. usually prepared meals. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it takes a lot more thought. That's right. And it if does. you're busy and there's only one of you and a couple of kids, or yeah. so, it's just, it's a lot. It's, yeah. And it's, it's really, really sad. It shouldn't be. I mean, they were even price guys on water during the pandemic. You know, you should have, you should be able to drink water. It's just, I don't know. We're just in a bad place. <laughs> so. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, this is really a story. It's a story of... Uh, what happens when you're the one with something unusual right navigating healthcare system and then your child has it right and then you have to watch your child deal with it right and then the journey along the way right wow what a story <laughs> what a story i never thought about it as a story what but a okay. story i mean it, it gives <clears throat> i hope it gives people hope yeah you know yeah um that you know, they're stronger than maybe they think they are. Right. And and what I'm hearing from you is that at some point you actually started to own your health. Right. Right. Well, I, like I said, she's taught me everything about life. <laughs> she has taught me everything. And I know another thing that actually keeps me or has kept me, because, you know, you've taken them to the doctor and you're rushing and you got the schedule and you got to get them to school and get to work and all this kind of stuff. Right. And I would take her to her um, appointment, especially hematology, because hematology and oncology are in the same clinic. And you rushing and you fussing and you and then you get there and you see all the kids that are there for oncology. Mm -hmm. And you see their parents and their parents look like they have not slept. And they just have this look of despair. And you see the kids, you know, you don't know if they're there for treatment or they're for lab. You don't know what they're there, but you know why they're there. You just mm -hmm. don't know. What, and it'll humble you every time. Like, okay, we're going to take this little spherocytosis. Come on, get this blood work done. We're going to take these vitamins. We're going to take these penicillin, right? Because they are really, really, really dealing with something heavy. And they're by the grace of God, go eye. So come on, we're going to take this. This is no, mm -hmm. this ain't no, no big, big deal. <laughs> no, but and every time, every time we would get there and 
you know, you're a busy mom and you're trying to just, everything is on the clock. Yeah. And you get there and you see the parents and you Say see no the problem. You'd be like, this is, this ain't nothing. This is nothing. So it, it kind of, it humbles you really fast. Really wow. quick. Wow. So thank you. Thank you for asking me no, to come. Thank you for sharing your story. <laughs> and again, not because it's so common, but because it's not. Right. And what do you do when you're that person out there with that uncommon thing? Right. You got to advocate for yourself. You have to advocate for yourself and just keep talking to somebody listen. Yeah. That's that's the big that's one thing I didn't do in the very beginning. It wouldn't have changed anything. You know, I wouldn't have like got stopped the pregnancy. I wouldn't have um mm. but I just would have just known a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, just advocate for yourself. All right, so there we go. Thanks. Thank you again. You're welcome.